0: show with Richard, talk to me guy, and as we know by now, Sherry Edwards is at work on soundhealthportal.com. It's an ongoing thing. I think every day she gets up and puts on her tool belt, her coding tool belt, and goes to work at the soundhealthportal.com. You can go to the Sound Health Portal, and you can see the current campaigns, which are free software programs that you can have your vocal print, which is a vocal recording, run through. Some of them currently are stem cells, corona conflict, neuroplasticity. I'm a big fan of neuroplasticity because I like to keep my brain flexible, bendy. In my brain, I'm doing yoga daily. Um, So I really like to keep that active. And you can scroll down a bit further at the Sound Health Portal, and you can sign up to get a free report. And that means that you'll just give them your email address so they can send the report to you. They're not going to spam you and they don't relentlessly email you. And you can do two 30 to 40 second recordings and the system will walk you through after you sign up and choose your campaign. It'll walk you through doing the recordings and you'll submit them and you'll get a report back with just a boatload of information. I recommend sitting down with a cup of tea and reviewing that. And you can see States of imbalance, maybe something's too much or not enough, or hyper, meaning pointy at the top, and hypo, meaning low. And they can both be about assimilation or something that lost lost its place in the methylation cascade. But it gives you a lot of information. And when you want to know more about that, I recommend that you go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on classes, and then scroll down to portal presentations. And there, you'll be able to watch a video demo, an online demo of Sherry doing a workup with somebody online live. And it really gives you a great overview of the amazing amount of information that's available in the overall Sound Health portal. And that's part of what Sherry is always refining, is a lot of the visual displays, meaning charts, pie charts, and things, where when you take a vocal print and you run it through the software and then it runs up its report. She's designed displays so that you can see a lot of information in one location very quickly about something that's on one of my favorite current charts is a kind of a pie chart where it's obvious that, oh, there's the thing we want to look at right now. Sometimes it can be just one thing that's out of place or out of balance that will help everything begin to drop into place so that the rest of the body, the system, it's all about the human body, the system, getting it to work correctly and be in balance. So I really do recommend watching one of the presentations at Portal Presentations. To hear a replay of this show, you can go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, click on Sound Health Radio, and the flyer for this show will be at the top. And you can also listen to it at Stitcher or Pocket Casts, which are podcast apps, which are both cross-platform, meaning iOS or Android. And now I'm happy to say that you can also go to TalkToMeGuy.com, my website, which finally got built, and in about 20 minutes after we press end here, you can go to TalkToMeGuy.com, and you'll see at the top the show with Bob Quinn today and hundreds of the other shows. They're also available there. And if you'd like, you can also, from that platform, you can leave me a voice message right from either your phone or from your computer if you have a microphone, leaving me a message, making a comment about a show or suggesting a guest or, you know, really anything you want. And you can just click on it. And we do need the email address only because I want to be able to respond to you. But that's really exciting to finally have that site together. It took a long time. It was a beast. So that's at TalkToMeGuy.com. And with that, Bob Quinn was raised on a 2,400-acre family-operated wheat and cattle ranch southeast of Big Sandy, Montana. He attended local schools and earned a BS in botany in 1970 and an MS in plant pathology in 1971 from Montana State University in Bozeman. He received a Ph.D. in plant biochemistry at the University of California at Davis, California, in 1976. After selling his business interests in a biological research and testing laboratory in Woodland, California, which he and a friend had started in 1974, he returned home to run the family farm and ranch in 1978. In April of 2018, Bob rented out his farm to his employees, so that the next generation could have their turn on the land. He still promotes organic and sustainable agricultural, locally produced food and fuel, as well as promoting the idea that food should be our medicine and medicine should be our food. He also promotes food production systems based on producing high nutrition and quality rather than high yields and works hard warning of the dangers of GMO-based food. He wrote Grain by Grain with his co-author, Liz Carlyle, which summarizes his philosophy of the tie between agriculture, food, and health. After a nationwide book tour in 2020, he completed his transition to retirement with the 100th year anniversary of the establishment of Quinn Farm and Ranch, June 12, 2020, and created a 600-acre research center in the middle of his farm. Bob joins us to talk about Grain by Grain, A Quest to Revive Ancient Wheat, Rural Jobs, and Healthy Food. Welcome, Bob.
1: Well, thanks, Richard. It's a great honor to join you today.
0: Bob and I were already talking backstage, so we're off to the races. Um, <laughs> this is, this is going to be fun. I have the feeling this is going to be a two-parter just because there's so much information, information that you have about farming and food. And food as fuel and nutrition, and just that whole realm really from literally the, the earth on your hand all the way to the table. So, this could be a, a multiple part show. That'd be great. I'm, you, I'm willing
1: to talk as long as you're, anybody's willing to listen.
0: <laughs> that's kind of my thing as well. We could do this for quite some time. Yeah. And you grew up on a family farm, family run 2,400 acre wheat and cattle ranch in Montana. And I'm looking for the tipping point. There's always some there's always seems to be some sort of tipping point where you were like an aha or something. And in Grain by Grain, you talk about scentless, unripe peaches when you were at UC Davis getting your degree in biochemistry. Was that a tipping point for you? It seems like it was like an aha moment of like, what is this scentless fruit? And you yeah. had a whole what is that? What was that?
1: Well, that was something that had never happened to me before. I don't know if you call it a tipping point because I didn't know I was going in a, di- in a different direction or anything. I was, uh, I was being trained in the uh, traditional industrial method of agriculture where we focus on feeding the plant and we focus on efficiencies and high yields and feeding the world and uh, shipping stuff uh, hither and yon as far as, the, uh, as, far as uh, things will hold up. And when I was a kid, we had peaches from California, and they were uh, double-wrapped in, in a wooden box. And and they were – all we had to do was put them on the shelf for a day or two, and they were ready to eat, and they were delicious and juicy and uh, just as, as sweet as can be. And uh, I always uh, envied those guys that live where you could actually grow a peach and go out in the peach orchard and pick one. And when I was at Davis and went on a field trip with – uh, one of the classes I was auditing, I was really excited to hear we were going to a peach orchard. And when I got there, um, I couldn't smell the, the peaches, which I expected to. Because we had gone to other ones uh, around Woodland, where we're living. Um, and the, uh, the owner would say, well, are you going to plant the can today or tomorrow? And he tracked he, us to the right file. And they were tasty and juicy and sweet and, and, and very, very wonderful uh, to smell. And I didn't see, I didn't have that experience in this particular orchard. And when I bit into a peach, as we were, we were handed samples. And they looked beautiful. They really did. They looked like they were dead ripe, but they were green as grass. And you, when you bit into them, they are hard as a rock. And they not only had no aroma, they had no flavor. And I said, "Wow, what is this? What is going on with this?" And and um, found out later that um, uh, the professor that was with us had de- had developed in conjunction with this um, fellow. Um, a petroleum spray of some sort that you could spray on the peaches while they're still uh, green. They they were starting to turn and they would uh, turn so that they they had that beautiful blush of a ripe peach, but they were still hard as a rock and they could be shipped. The beauty of this, they said, that they could be shipped all over the country in big crates and they wouldn't bruise. So it was all about um, efficiency and shipping. But uh, when I got back to Montana and, and bought peaches like that, most of them um, de- decayed from the inside out, and they never did get nice and ripe and, and tasty like I remember as a kid. So that was the first time I really questioned the direction we were going with this industrial um, chemical ag um, um, studies that I had, uh, had been involved with all my life.
0: Wow. So that really was a, a, a life-changing moment. Because of that, we were talking a bit backstage, and, and as the audience knows, I was a chef on and off for a number, for a bunch of years, for almost 20 years. And we were talking about one of my favorite restaurants was the one in a, a small, what was called a bistro in Carmel. And the, my produce suppliers were the founders of Earthbound Farms. And I would remember when... And And they were literally bringing them my produce, the the actual founders. it wasn't their workers; they were so new that they were still they were just developing their farming. And I remember when Myra would come in in the mornings and we'd be talking, and she'd bring in a flat of freshly picked raspberries, and I would just stick my face in that flat of raspberries, and they had that amazing nose of a of a warm, delicious raspberry, and it was the hardest thing for me, not just as to like dog snarfle the whole tray just by myself. <laughs> Because they were just mind-blowing, and that's the way all the produce I got from them was, is it actually had a full sensory experience. They didn't use pesticides. They didn't use chemicals. That was their thought leading. I don't know that they were regenerative yet, but that's a whole other conversation. But it was really mind-blowing to have produce that was – it smelled what it was, and if you didn't treat it correctly, it would go bad on you. But as as I also said backstage – I personally would rather have a case of peaches that were too ripe because I can do something with that. I can't do something with a green peach. Yep. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and and how did how did Corson come into your life and did was that part of your transition when you started growing organically in 86? Was that part of a transition or was that just, did that whole thing sort of evolve? You were already an organic farmer and then Coruscant surfaced.
1: No, those two things um, weren't related in the beginning. They um, evolved separately, but almost at the same time, as far as the activity on my farm. I had started, um, I was introduced to organic farmers. So my first organic farmers in about 84, when um, just after we started a small um, wheat and flour company in order to um, sell directly our whole whole grain and high-protein wheat off our farm to whole grain bakers in California. Uh, we were trying to survive, and um, it, it wasn't organic in the beginning. We started in 83, and uh, about a year went by, and our customer, uh, this was, um, uh, a Food for Life in, in um, Southern California. Mm-hmm was using our grain, and they loved it, and they said, man, can you find some organic grain of uh, the same kind of quality? And I said, sure. And um, uh, how soon do you need it? He says, as soon as you can get it here. And so I hung up the phone, and I thought, oh, my gosh, what did I just say? Because at that time, I didn't even know any organic farmers. And, and at that time also, I didn't even believe in this organic stuff because I had been taught all my life that a plant couldn't tell the difference between a molecule of nitrogen Coming out of a manure pile and one coming out of a bag of ammonium sulfate and and that's what I believe um, now, of course, my focus isn't on feeding the plant at all it's on feeding the soil but that was that was the traditional schooling I'd received, but I didn't want to let the um uh my bias uh, uh, hurt my business, so I went looking and I finally found somebody that was raising organic wheat and I bought it and sent it to California, and they wanted more they loved it and i started meeting a few other farmers and there weren't very many in those days and they, we got to be friends. They invited me to some of their meetings and I was astounded at what I heard. All they would talk about is the differences they saw on their farm and how things were uh, changing and how they loved um, growing, growing uh, up food without chemicals. And they were raising their own fertilizer and they talked about the soil tilth um, under their feet was changing and they could um, avoid weed, um, herbicides and, and control with, um, rotations and that kind of thing. I really, really fascinated me. And I was a a scientist at heart and I could hardly wait to get home and start experimenting on my own farm. And so our first experiment started in about 86 and, um, with, um, with 20 acres and that was, a a, Oh gosh, about 1% of our farm. And, um, within two years, I was a, um, I was a complete uh, and enthusiastic convert. And, and that's all I could think about and talk about was organic agriculture from then on. Um, the Coruscant story started also in about, uh, for ser- uh, in a serious way in 86. We went to our first health food show in 86 in um, California, in Anaheim, the Expo West, Natural Products Expo West. It's called then. And um, my, um, uh, we were we were trying to peddle. My cousin and I were working together. He was from Southern California. Same as Steve Lancaster, and we were trying to peddle our um, uh, stone ground flour that we had, had added the stone mill to our operation by then, and and we were and we we're increasing our organic um, percent year by year, and so we were offering high quality stone ground and whole whole grain wheat from uh, North Central Montana and my dad and mom went with me to help us because we didn't know anything about the food shows and what to do we built our own booth we we just showed up and my dad bought this little jar of this a giant wheat we called king Tut's wheat because that's what the neighbors had called it and and the story came was that it had um been sent to montana by a airman stationed in portugal who went to the bar one night and a fellow next to him said hey look what i found in a tomb in egypt he'd been on furlough there and he had this giant wheat, and and he talked him out of thirty or forty kernels, and they sent it home to his dad and, um, in our county in Montana, and they grew, which should have been the first clue that they actually didn't come out of a tomb. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's what he said, and uh, I that was around 1950 or so. It was just a novelty; people would grow it just for fun and because it was big. And um, I first saw it when I was uh, in high school at the county fair in about '63. And uh, I don't remember what I ever did with it. A whole fellow passed out a few curdles to me and said it was king tusk wheat. And um, much later, when I was at Davis, just finishing my PhD, I was eating a back package of corn nuts. And on the back of the package, it said corn nuts made with a giant corn. And I thought, wow, I wonder if corn nuts would be interested in a giant wheat. So I called them up and they were down in, um, I think were in Oakland at that time, it wasn't far from Davis. And and they said, yeah, we might be interested in that. And I called my dad and I said, dad, see if you can find some of that old king tusk wheat. And he found about a pint jar and we sent him a few, uh tablespoon or two. And they cooked it up and they called me or I called them back in a, in a week or so. And they said, man, this is fabulous. We'll take 10,000 pounds right now. And I said, well, I don't really have 10,000 pounds, but um, if you'd be a little, give me a little time, I'll grow whatever you want. And so I called my dad and I said, dad, plant the whole thing in the garden right now. And so we planted it for a couple of years, um, growing crops in the, over the winter in California and over the summer in Montana. And um, we had about three years went by. We had about 50 pounds. I called up cornuts again and the guy I talked to was gone. No one was interested. And so we just put it in the shelf, in the, in the shed. And um, six or eight, seven years mm-hmm. later, my, my dad took a jar of it to this first food show we went to. And at the end of three days, after hundreds and maybe thousands of people went by our booth, one person expressed an interest in that. And because of that one person, we went home, we planted all 50 pounds and a half acre. And after 30 years, we were contracting with about 250 organic farmers in Montana, Alberta, and Saskatchewan for about 100,000 acres. So that uh, went from a handful to to a big um, venture for us in, uh, in, in just a few decades. So that was that. That was the, the, that. Those two stories started that at the same time, but they weren't um, inter interwoven immediately.
0: Right. And I was surprised to read in Grain by Grain that the Italians love Camus. Oh, well, actually, no. Let me back that up one moment. When did Cor- Coruscant is the name of the ancient grain, and you established it as what I would call a brand or a trademark called Camus? Is that correct? Kamut,
1: yes. K-A-M-U-T, Kamut. K-A-M-U-T what we pronounce it. It's, um, it's a trademark, and a trademark doesn't um, confer any ownership, of course, on the wheat, but it does confer um, customer guarantees. And since we own the trademark, we get to make the rules that you have to live by to use the trademark, and the first rule is it has to always be organic. Um, second rule is it has to be high protein, which it easily is. Um, it's higher protein than most modern wheat. Um, you have to tell the truth about it. You can't pretend it's not wheat because we very soon found that most people could eat it. They couldn't eat modern wheat. And, and some, some of the, some similar things were happening with spelt and people were trying to pretend that spelt wasn't a wheat and they would advertise it that way. And I thought that wasn't right. And so we, we always were careful to declare it was a wheat, but for people who had sensitivities, they probably could, um, good chance they could eat it without any problem. So that's what we did. We, um, We marketed it under the trade um, mark or trade name of Kamut, Kamut brand wheat. In the beginning, we didn't know. Coruscant was a a scientific name that, um, uh, like like spelt or durum. And um, it's a very, very close relative to durum. But in the beginning, it was misidentified by the plant scientists I sent it to as polonicum, which is Polish wheat. And we went under the assumption it was Polish wheat for oh, three or four years before we got to the USDA um, small grains labs in Idaho where the experts there correctly identified it as um, um, Coruscant.
0: And when you say it's related, is is Durham, is red wheat, is that is that correct? Is there one called red wheat that's a Durham well, wheat? Well,
1: there's, there's hard red wheat, so they're used that's for what red, it is.
0: Right. hard
1: red spring, hard red winter, there's hard white, there's... Soft white that's used for pastries, but Durham is in a different category and it's used primarily for pasta.
0: Okay, that was what. Thank you very much for that cue. Uh, that's where I was going. I was I was kind of stunned to find that the Italians are crazy for camou. Oh, they are. They are. They because of their because of their fussy nature about foods <laughs> that they eat. And I mean that yeah. in a positive way. I respect it. I know, but, I know. But they're like crazed for Kamut. Could you talk about that a little bit? That's amazing. Well, that, was,
1: that was a big surprise to us. Um, we, didn't, we didn't anticipate. You know, I, I had no idea that this would go anywhere the way it did. And it wasn't our. We didn't sit down and try to map out where this is going to go. And uh, so in the beginning, we were just trying to find some people who were interested in it. And, and um, my dad was uh, out at the farm here with with me one time we got a phone call from lima in um, belgium and i could hear it was kind of a short conversation and finally he said no no we're not really interested and he hung up the phone and i said well dad who was that and he said oh some guy from belgium a company called lima and and they wanted some of our Camus. i told him we we don't know how we didn't we weren't interested in sending it to europe (laughs) i said oh my gosh i said dad that's a huge company i've heard of them um, they're a macrobiotic company and <clears throat> one of the leaders in Europe. And uh, luckily they called back because when my dad refused to sell them, then they got really excited. They really wanted it then. They thought, man, this <laughs> was... <laughs> <What>? <laughs> he's not even wanting to sell it to us. And so um, the fellow, I answered the phone this time and, and we struck up a deal and they came and visited us and, and they became our initial importer importers into Europe. And uh, we were told at the beginning, not even to think about, Going to Italy, we were focusing on Northern Europe, particularly Germany became our biggest customer right away because it made a wonderful light-colored bread as a whole grain and a very nice flavor. And we were told, oh, that Italians will never pay for this grain, um, what you're asking for. It it has a low yield, and and the farmers never get a fair price normally. So being a farmer myself, we started out with what we considered as a very fair price to the farmers. And so it ended up being almost two or three times the cost of a normal wheat, and um, we, when we were in Europe, we were told, "Well, the Italians will never pay that much." But they found out about it all by themselves, so we didn't really take it there. We went to a food show there one, on oh, the early, oh, about the end of the 90s, I guess, late late 90s, and uh, here they had a couple hundred products already in the market we didn't even know about. They were getting it raw material out of Germany, and what they found is it made a terrific pasta, very nice texture. Very nice flavor, and for many of them, it became their favorite pasta. And so it just exploded in Italy. And now 75% of everything we plant goes to Italy, and they make, um, oh gosh, three or nearly 4,000 different products there. Everything you can imagine that you can make with wheat, they're making going very, very well in Italy.
0: Well, in a certain way, it makes sense to me is that after I got over the shock of it, it made sense. Because the idea of a pasta that has what, what people would talk about a good bite when you bite into it, you want to serve pasta slightly al dente, which means a little less cooked than we would think. Yeah. Well, if you actually sit down with Italians and eat pasta, it's going to be like, is this undercooked? Yes, intentionally. Yes. <laughs> and if you have a grain that's in a high gluten, it's going to have a different bite to it. It all, It all, in my mind, it came together completely because... With a high gluten grain, it's going to have a different bite than a low gluten grain. Grain, so it makes sense to me immediately that Camus would be perfect for pastas. So, but it all, but that all came together in my mind like what they're cra because they are so particular about the they foods are. that they yeah. like. You know, they really like their prosciutto. They're that's right, prosciutto. and they're and you know they, they're they're serious.
1: That's right, that's right. And when they what one of our one of our big customers, one of our best customers, the um uh Felicetti who makes pasta, um, when they first started with it, the um the the owner, the old the old man of the family, was in he says, Wow, he said, What is this? It has the same aroma I remember as a child. And so the Italians feel like this is something they once had and and, and lost and now it's returned to them and, and that's why they're so excited about it. I think that's one of the main drivers.
0: That's really great. I love that <laughs> it really did shock me though I was just like what because I know Italian chefs and they're so like no American cat no California olive oil and we have really great olive oil or we have yeah. lots of really great things but they're just like nope it's got to come from the mothership all yeah. right all right 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 no
1: we never so look forward you. it was a surprise to us Richard really
0: and as you, as you worked more with the Camus, did, did the Camus really m- allow you – as you were doing organic farming, you, you very specifically used the terms together organic regenerative. Yes. <laughs> Would you talk about why you're so specific about that? I, I, I mean that in a good way, not in a challenging like, why are you doing that? Because I, no, I really – as I read the book, I got more of like why you're so specific about that.
1: Well, when we first started with the organic movement, or I got involved, it was already going before I got there, of course, but when we got involved with it and and involved with um, trying to get the first organic labeling law passed in um, 1990, the the, the word, we didn't use the word regenerative, we used sustainable, which meant that if you kept doing something, it would, be, it would sustain itself, it would keep going forever, theoretically. Uh, so, you wanted to do stuff that would, would go by itself forever. Um, later, um, here in the in recent decade, uh, the term regenerative was coined, <clears throat> which I think has a little better connotation. It means that the soil, and it's focusing on the, on the soil, which I touched on earlier, that it has to regenerate. You have to do things that regenerate the soil and regenerate the life in the soil. But what has happened to organic and has happened to regenerative um, individually have uh, been kind of disturbing to me a little bit. Um, organic, in some in some ways, has be, um, started to become industrialized, and and so that we are focusing on inputs and just substituting organic inputs from chemical for chemical inputs. and and focusing on feeding the plant again. Uh, that's, that's, as I mentioned earlier, that's, that's where I started with that education of feeding the plant. Of course you fed it chemically, but now there's some, um, thought or some philosophy that, uh, people are starting to just mimic our industrial egg production, but you do it in an organic, uh, way. I mean, it's a legal organic way. And, um, to me, they're, they're kind of missing the boat because, um, I think um, the original intention was having uh, renewed life in the soil and, and feeding the plants, having the soil feed your plants, right. And you feed them. Um, On the other hand, we have this regenerative uh, in some circles, this regenerative uh, movement uh, equals no-till. And in Montana, no-till is accomplished with Roundup with glyphosate. Um, It's, and and that's what no-till means in Montana because we we cannot grow a crop every year we don't have enough moisture for that we only have about twelve uh, inches of rain a year and so we fallow we we let the ground lie fallow one year and we uh, to so it can build up moisture and then we have enough to plant a um, cash crop the next year um, in former days that um, folks would cultivate those fallow fields so they were black fallow and they would. Be subject to wind erosion and, and water erosion, all kinds of bad things. Um, and so, when glyphosate came out as the idea of chemfallow, spraying your stubble with this uh, herbicide um, three or four times or five times a year, um, that was uh, looked at as a godsend for soil conservation. And so, no-till uh, equaled chemfallow here. Mm. And um, and so, they wanted they want to pretend that they're better than organic because, um, you know, they're not disturbing their soil. And I took quite big exception with that. Um, on our fellow years, we're growing green manures. Now we're growing legumes mostly, which we terminate uh, with some kind of an undercutting device, um, that cuts off the roots and then allows the, the, um, the plants that we've grown, the legumes to first sit on top of the soil as a kind of, um, little bit of a um, mulch and then eventually they're incorporated into the soil to feed the soil and that's how we um, are able to grow our crop the following year Um, that's quite different than of course irrigation and all those kinds of systems but that's what we do in the in the upper great plains um, of north america and um, i look at that as really a regenerative system because we're feeding the soil but I think it's not enough to just say you're regenerative or just say you're organic because of the different directions that that can entail, um, neither of which are sustainable. But the only way to really have it sustainable in my mind is to put the two ideas together and, and call it um, regenerative organic. And uh, you're doing or using organic principles, but you're focused, still focusing on the soil and building up the soil. And that's why I like to use that term as a whole picture of what, what we should be focusing on.
0: Well, and I have a, um, what would I call it? Besides the chef thing, I grew up near the Salinas Valley. And so ah. for decades, we would drive through the Salinas Valley and every year I would watch For example, this is a favorite gripe, gripe for me. I would watch them plastic the hills near Watsonville oh, yeah. and then yeah. they would methyl bromide the hills and yes. then they would plant the strawberry plants.
1: Yes,
0: And now it never made sense to me. By then, I'd already had, gotten my degree as an herbalist, so I was already thinking as a healthcare practitioner that when you're dealing with somebody, you look at the foundation of why they might have a condition because they might have a general kind of weakness in their, let's say, their adrenals or kidneys. Hmm. And so I always looked at those plants that they had to do this for. I thought, why are these plants so suppressed that they can't grow without having chemicals added? It just didn't ever make sense to me. So yeah. when you t- started using when – I, when I read the, in gra- the grain by grain, it really locked in for me the idea of organic regenerative, rotational, which is the counter – I don't know. I don't have any good words I can use uh, growing near the Salinas Valley, which every year for, for the first 20 years of 25 years of my life living there, you could go by the same field every year and you'd see the exact same crop every year no idea of changing a crop or rotating a crop or any kind of things and also i was repeatedly dusted by the uh, famous scene out of north by northwest where you get crop dusted i was crop dusted i realized years later by ddt as a kid because you love to stick your head out of the car and have the crop duster fly over you not realizing that's what it was it was so cool to like wow crop duster moisture no connection oh that was ddt So it's that whole thing of, I grew up in a very ag rich area, yet no respect for the earth. Right. It just blows my mind. I don't really have a question there other than an observation of like, it just, how can we not respect the soil where everything we consume and makes us who we are? How's there, you have such respect for the soil.
1: Well, Richard, one thing that in response to that, a picture you painted, which is really the most uh, common of what we see across America under the industrial chemical agricultural model, we are really focusing on monocultures. And monoculture is a completely artificial, um, uh, strange way to, to uh, grow, uh, grow things. If you look at nature, you never see a monoculture. You see great diversity. And what we're trying to do with regenerative organic agriculture is as much as possible mimic what we see in nature, because there's no there's no spray planes in nature. You don't see um, chemicals <laughs> being sprayed out in the prairies and in the desert and mm-hmm. across the mountain forest. I mean, not, you know, not routinely. Uh, there's no um, fertilizer being applied. And yet everything goes on eons, uh, you know, century after century, millennium after millennium. And how does it work? It works because the plants and the animals and the microbes and everything, the the, the birds even um, everything that's the rodents, everything that's living there, um, either takes or adds or both uh, to the ecosystem, and so it's in perfect balance. And so um, we can't grow multiple crops in our fields, you know, successfully at this point. We're experimenting with a few, but generally we mimic the diversity by rotations. And you mentioned that, and that's just the opposite of monoculture, and that's how we we uh, are able to avoid these chemicals, these artificial crutches, is what I call them. That's propping up this artificial system, which is really um,
0: doomed to failure
1: uh, at some point, and uh, it's a failed system. We are, uh, you know, people talk to me about conventional agriculture, and then they're they pretend they're talking about, you know, chemical agriculture and biotech and all that. And stuff. So I say to them, that's not conventional. That's in a, that's in a, a, a chemical experiment of the last 50 or 60 years. And we're starting to see the wheels coming off that bus all over. I said, what's conventional is what was had been doing for 10,000 years. The systems that were tried and true and, um, and really work because they've been worked out. Um, we didn't have that kind of agriculture in North America, but they had it in in Asia and uh, African countries, and and some parts in in um, in Europe even too. But um, we can, it's no reason why we can't learn it and adopt it rather than going to uh, continue the uh, failed system of chemical agriculture.
0: Well, and one of the things about chemical agriculture, besides being sprayed with DDT every time we went drove up to. Silicon, but what is now Silicon Valley to visit my grandparents, that, oh, for example, methyl bromide, what they eventually figured out, one of the things that brought a big flag up about it was that the one of the first tipping points of that was that they were spraying it near schoolyards. So oh, that, yeah. right, that, that eventually got like many bad words um, of like, are you kidding me? There's that. And then there was also the addition that it was highly destructive to the ozone layer, So eventually it was stopped at about 2009, but it was sprayed for, it was gassed into the fields for decades. And, you know, and that's the other thing that blows my mind is it's like glyphosate. I mean, glyphosate is now, we were talking a bit backstage. I live in Sonoma County in wine country, but also a fairly active agricultural area. And they're now glyphosate is not only in breast milk, it's in organic wines. It's just everywhere. And there may not even be applying it. And...
1: We have it in our rainwater, Richard. So I've been studying yeah. it in the rain that falls on our ground. So you're absolutely right about that, and and so it's way beyond the schoolyards where you thought about the, about the bromide problem. Now it's not only in the schoolyards, but over almost everybody, at some at some uh, concentration or another.
0: And I want to I want to step back for a moment to talk back to Kamut because I think this is an interesting thing. Is that people tend people even with gluten intolerance well I'll call it gluten intolerance uh have been able to eat Camus because it is lower in gluten my question is in your in your research do you think part of the issue with gluten for people is the glyphosate industry
1: well that's a really good question richard um but first of all um you have The the terminology is a little tricky. Normally, when you say gluten intolerance, you're talking about um, celiac disease. Uh, That's only 1% of the population who can't stand any form of gluten. It's really an intolerance, complete intolerance. Um, Then you have wheat sensitivities, which are much, much broader, and that affects from 10 to 20% of the population um, with all kinds of ailments, of of bloating, of... um, cramping, of constipation, of diarrhea, of rashes, of headaches, of tiredness, and all kinds of some nondescript stuff. Um, and those are, the mode of action of those varies. But research coming out of Canada has demonstrated that glyphosate on wheat, which uh, sometimes occurs when, especially when wheat is um, desiccated by before harvest, mm-hmm. so it's still there, fairly high concentrations, will mimic um, some of those um, what people are referring to as wheat sensitivities. And what's happening, glyphosate, uh, as you know, or, or you don't know, I don't know how much chemistry of glyphosate you have, but it's a, it's a chelator, for one thing, so it ties up metals, but it's also an antibiotic, um, and it works in um, uh, blocking a certain metabolic pathway which are in plants, which are making a um, amino acid that is necessary for plants to survive. But it's not necessary in humans because we don't have that metabolic pathway. So it has no direct effect on humans in that way. But the other effect that it not only affects plants, but also many bacteria that have this same metabolic pathway and uh, it kills the bacteria. So it's an antibiotic. And now when you start to ingest an antibiotic, well, guess guess where bacteria living, um, not only in the soil, but in your gut. Um, we as humans have more uh, bacteria living in our gut than we have cells making up the rest of our body, than human cells. So we're hosting more uh, cells, uh, living cells, than we are actually living in, <laughs> you might say. So when you ingest something that affects those and starts to um, destroy their, some of their lives, that you are really affecting the the, metabol- the metabolism of your, or the digestion of your food and the production of, of certain compounds that's important for um, keeping you healthy and, um, and, and going in the right way. And that's why we start to see some of these effects that people are, are finding. Um, and that is a mimicking of some of these other things that, that weed is causing. We don't really know how, what percent Um, is is being affected or attributed to what, but uh, it's not just the gluten because actually the Kamut brand wheat has more gluten than modern wheat generally, but the gluten is so different. The quality is different um, that it is not affecting people in the same way that the gluten in modern wheat is.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I I have a uh, local baker, who has had a gentleman in northern california growing heirloom wheat for them for decades. Yeah. And they only they don't get enough to produce all their breads using this grain, but they make their baguettes out of that that grain. And I mm-hmm. can go to the farmers market and I can get a loaf of their baguette and it's just a ba- it's a baguette. But in yep. my couple of hours of meandering around the farmers market and talking to everybody I'll eat a loaf of, of a loaf of this bread cuz it's fresh. Come on, it's fresh. Yes. It's like mind-blowingly delicious. They yes. they bake it in a wood-burning oven. I mean, they're nuts in a great way. I can oh. eat a loaf of that no reaction of any kind. No discomfort, no bloating, no anything. Whereas if I eat a regular bread, I have all the typical sort of like gluten issues. So I just for a general yeah. rule, don't eat wheat. Much easier to do that. Um, but the idea of having kamut, I, I didn't know that it had, had a higher gluten, but it was a different kind of gluten. That's very exciting. Well, and I think
1: it, and that's similar to a lot of these, um, what they call ancient grains or ancient wheats or heirloom wheats, which is what you're describing at your local bakery. So mm-hmm. I would encourage you not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> Wheat <We laughs> has been eaten and built civilizations for thousands of years, the ancient Romans, the Ephesians, the the uh, Greeks, the uh, uh, Egyptians, uh, the Babylonians—they all were great civilizations uh, built on wheat. And so, I don't think that you can say wheat by its nature is bad. But what we've done to it in the last 60 years is certainly bad. Uh, we've focused only on on increasing yields, and on, not only for the farmer, uh, making the wheat shorter and more disease resistant, and um, uh, and higher yields, better able to respond faster to high high um, applications of chemical fertilizers, nitrogen, for example. But um, probably more significantly, uh, we have changed the nature of the gluten for the bakers. So the bakers are wanting more and more bread out of less and less wheat. And they're wanting a gluten that is stronger, uh, strong as a rubber balloon, uh, so it can hold... Um, much more air and just little pockets and cells in that bread. So that, uh, well, imagine this, Richard, how if you were a baker and you could sell air for the price of wheat, wouldn't that be attractive if you were an industrial baker? Um, That's that's what's (laughs) going on. (laughs) And uh, so that the the, uh, bakers were putting a big demands on the wheat breeders to come up with wheat that would make bigger loaves of bread with less wheat or the same amount of wheat and and they were successful at that um but but the the unintended consequences of that was now a a protein in form of the gluten that gave a lot of people a lot of trouble in digestion um so that's um that's part of the problem i tell people if they have trouble eating wheat there's four things i'd recommend first of all eat organic only so you avoid that the glyphosate and other contamination problems we already spoke about um eat Heirloom or ancient grains, um, so you avoid the um, uh, plant breeders um, uh, fiddling with the with the um, changing the gluten. Um, eat whole grain. Uh, don't eat white flour. You, you're throwing away a, a third of uh, important goodies that are good for your digestion. The bran, the, the fiber, the, the all the vitamins and uh, out of the um, the germ. That's all going to the pigs. The pigs are eating better than we are. Um, hmm. So this, uh, this is a problem. And the last thing I would suggest, if it's bread, then uh, buy sourdough um, because sourdough is pre-digesting that gluten and starting to break it down. If you if you ferment if you ferment bread 48 hours, um, no one does it that long. Hardly anybody does it that long. But you will you will destroy a, over 90% of the gluten in that bread, and um, you're pre-digesting it so that your body only has to finish the job. And it's very it's a lot easier on your system if your system is sensitive, it's a lot easier so if you do those four things um I guarantee you, you've got a, over ninety percent chance of uh enjoying that uh bread that in the past with the modern uh, chemical um fast rising yeast um uh industrial model is giving you trouble.
0: It's funny you would mention that spongy bread in the in the very first restaurant where I trained under a tough german chef uh we used to have a recipe uh where we started out with 100 pounds of durham flour and we'd make onion bread and it was a beautiful you know each every table would get a little cutting board with bread and a little tub of butter Uh, and so we'd make this bread and it had an amazing feel to it uh the the harder wheat makes a really great bread and he was a in the old school it would be called a master baker he could bake anything yeah. And it was a blast to work with. And then decades later, when I would try and make that same thing, I could never get quite the right texture. But now that you're talking about it more, it makes, again, so much more sense. The idea of a great I've always leaned toward ancient grains because they have a better hand feel uh, uh-huh. versus the stretchy. I'm suspicious of a white fluffy bread. I remember as a- even as a kid visiting friends that I grew up with and and the mom was always like, would you like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And she'd hand me this weird Wonder Bread stuff. And I was always like, what is this? Is this marshmallows? This (laughs) is bread. What is this? My parents had a German background, so there was more like a a pumpernickel or a rye kind of lean in in my household. So the idea of eating that weird fluffy white stuff was just it was more fun to wad up and throw at my brother than it was to eat. It was just the weirdest (laughs) thing I could ever imagine. Yeah. So the idea that far, that that bakers are looking for, and I've also known professional bakers that would want a harder wheat to make a croissant or to make different kind of products. Yeah. But I didn't know about the. I didn't connect the dots about the fluffy because it makes me think of, about the onion bread we used to make because it was a fast rise, lots of yeast. It was a delicious yeah. bread, but it was very fluffy, and people really liked that. Um, well, on nooks and crannies.
1: That's right, and nowadays they use the fast-rising yeast that's been developed now that r- rises so fast that it, that it only has time to digest the sugar that they add to the bread, to and that makes the, the um, carbon dioxide, the gas that raises the bread, <clears throat> and, and it doesn't really give it a chance to even, even start to um, uh, digest or ferment the glutens and the starches and the other things that are in that dough because it goes so fast. So it's, sourdough is really at the other extreme from rising yeast.
0: Well, and I think it's interesting that because it's such a trend in eating fermented foods for gut health, for your microbiome yeah. health, to eat fermented foods that it makes sense. And, and having grown up near San Francisco, there was always the competition between at that, in those years, in my, shall we say youth, and the let's just say eighties um, that there were two main bakeries in San Francisco and they had their own sourdough. And there was yep. always this, like, you could go taste I forget what the brands were, but you could go taste this one and you could go eat that one. And eating sourdough bread was always a different experience. And now, again, because you've explained that it's pre-digested in a certain way by the fermentation process, how great is that? I mean, sourdough yeah. is a wonderful thing anyway. Yes. Sourdough waffles. Oh, my God. Sourdough yeah. waffles. I'm telling you, you'll never go back. Or muffins. Sourdough yeah. muffins.
1: Wow. I make uh, sourdough pancakes out of our fresh ground flour at least once a week and have make enough I can eat it another time or two during the week. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that would be delicious. I don't know. Is do you think sourdough? Well, I know in the, in the food culinary world, I know that sourdough is kind of back. But in the general world, I wish we would see more sourdough because I think it benefits. I'm I'm a big fan of anything we can do to help people's microbiome themselves, as as much as you are a fan of the microbiome of the earth. Yeah, I think because those two really. One doesn't happen without the other. We need a healthy microbiome in the earth. We need a healthy microbiome to survive as a species.
1: They're really so similar systems. Um, It's amazing. And it's it's becoming now better understood all the time and better focused on. I think that's a great uh, direction that we're headed with that.
0: I'm excited by that. And did you say, or I don't remember if you talked about this in the book, has anybody looked at that? done research at at comparing people eating an organic, perhaps an organic like a kamut sourdough bread versus just an off the shelf, even sourdough but a non-organic I would like to see research on the difference between, if, if we could do a study between those two on how people react to the different kinds of breads fully organic regenerative farmed kamut bread versus off the shelf even sourdough I bet that there's quite a large difference in terms of how it affects people's gut.
1: No, that's true. I'm sure there would be. Um, We've done a lot of research, mostly in Italy because we couldn't find people who 20 years ago, we couldn't find many researchers that thought there was a real problem with wheat. Most of them thought that that people who claim to have a problem was mostly just uh, had mental uh, difficulties and it was all in their head. They're imagining this. And uh, so we ended up in university of Bologna and university of Florence. Some, Uh, Medical Research Hospital, and uh, we published uh, 35 peer-reviewed journal articles that you can go to our website, kamut.com, and and find on our research section and download yourself in the original form and uh, read them yourself. And um, what we were comparing was mostly organic modern wheat with organic uh, uh, kamut brand wheat. We didn't want to introduce, at that point, the difference between organic and non-organic, because that would be too many variables when we we're first getting started. And so we did, we saw an enormous difference between the ancient wheat and the modern wheat. And we studied chronic disease. We studied uh, people, clinical trials, human clinical trials, of uh, people that had these diseases and they would do uh, double-blind studies where they would eat um, a, a diet of wheat. Well, the wheat that was in their diet was given to them by us, and they either, they were pasta, bread, crackers, flour, either um, ancient or modern wheat. They didn't know which was which. It was a double-blind crossover study, which meant they didn't know what they were eating. Uh, the professors didn't know what they were eating, research scientists. And at the end of the um, first um, trial of six weeks, they had blood tests and was compared to the beginning. And then they had a washout period. And then they switched over and ate the, the uh, other diet. Uh, so each... Both groups had both diets at the end, which made a very strong um, scientific comparison. And what we found, more than anything else, that the grain was anti-inflammatory. Um, and inflammation is connected with all forms of chronic disease. And so to have foods that are anti-inflammatory are very, very important to help with uh, fighting those disease rather than aggravating and increasing those diseases. So we, I really got... When I started seeing that, that's when it really solidified my mind, the the link between uh, food and health and how medicine really should be our food and food should really be our medicine. Um, we did a little bit of a couple of trials studying the microbiome, and we found that uh, comparing the ancient wheat with the modern wheat, that the microbiome was much uh, more diverse. It supported a much more diverse population of bacteria, but we didn't – we haven't really um, – gone beyond that too much and trying to analyze what those differences are and, and what they might mean. But we have done a little bit. So just um, we've done part of your, your suggestion, but not the whole thing. That would be very, very interesting. Of
0: course. I think it'd be really, you'd have to get funding from, it's probably going to, I'm so, I'm so delighted that, you know, the Italians are like fully on board with this. Like we're pro (laughs) come That's Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, I, I know a number of Italian chefs. I'm going to be at, talking to them about their pasta and where they're getting it. Because I know chefs in California that get their pasta from Italy. And yes. I bet it's commute because they want that indigenous, you know, the worldly flavor. Like I say, they're like that about their prosciutto, their olive oil, and their cheeses, um, and their wine. I mean, they're really pretty much full metal, all Italian foods. And I understand the why. It's about the flavor. Yes. It's not about yes. the snobbiness. It's all about the flavor. Yes. Well, maybe maybe a little snobbiness, <laughs> maybe, a, <laughs> maybe a tiny amount of that, but it's about the flavor. It really ultimately is. There is, as you say, some older couple somewhere in the back yelling about, this tastes like what it was like when I was a kid. That's, yeah, yeah. That's and you know, amazing. something
1: really, really interesting with that, Richard, um, we we don't know all of the different types of um, of uh, compounds that um, the plants make that, that uh, add to your health. Um, the secondary metabolites are referred to, um, but a lot of them are polyphenols and other uh, metabolites that actually are responsible for the flavors and aromas in the food. So the better a food tastes and the better aroma it has, the probably there's a good chance the healthier it is for you because of those um, uh, antioxidant and anti-inflammatory fighting. Uh, compounds that can be tasted and and, uh, also um, enjoyed, smelled um, in a very positive way. And so, right, you don't have to do a lot of expensive analysis. You can just taste it and and smell it. And if it smells good and tastes good, it probably is good and uh, is superior, I should say.
0: Just ask the dog. If I put yeah. down two things, if I and put down a piece of grass, if I put down a piece of grass fed, grass finished, and I'm very specific about that, like you are about organic regenerative yeah. uh, beef on the ground, you know, in a bowl, and I put down standard over the counter chemicalized factory produced cows on the ground, that dog is going to go eat the grass fed beef first. Now they're probably going to finish the other one because it's a dog. They'll eat anything, but they're going to eat that Their nose, the the nose that you, what people use that a lot of the wine industry. You talk about the nose of a wine, the smell of the wine. And the same thing is about a great baked bread. It smells amazing. A sourdough bread loaf right out of the oven. I'm like, it's amazing. So we really let our noses do some of the educating of what we're shoving in our faces. That's right. (laughs) In the best of ways. <laughs> I mean that more politely than it sounded. Um and I'm stunned to find that we're at the point of where can people find out more about you? Where would you like them to find your book? Well you and, find- and any, and any other closing thought you you have right. we could do another hour just on closing thoughts, but go ahead. Okay,
1: great. <laughs> well, my book is um grain by grain. You can find it wherever you normally shop for books. Um online and bookstores. Um, uh, I'd like to encourage people to patronize your local bookstores first if they can, but um, that's available and that's handy. You can also get it. um, uh, Kindle, you can, you can download it. uh, So you can get it available in audio format now. So it's available in just about any way you want to look at it. Um, As far as our products go, um, they're available in any, any health food store now. And a lot of the mainline grocery stores that have a, a, a fair-sized organic and health food section. Our biggest, um, uh, probably our biggest uh, suppliers around the country are Bob's Red Mill for for grain mm, and mm-hmm. uh, and flour, and also cracked grain for hot cereal. That's fantastic. Nature's Path it probably has more Kamut cereal than anybody else. It's, it's mostly in their heritage lines, um, which is quite one well, of their standard ones. And that have, the main grain in that is, is Kamut Grand wheat. Um, you can find sometimes in your local bakeries are, 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 um, baking with it. You have to ask, it's not everywhere, but, um, they can get it. So that, um, just, just ask, um, same with pasta. We Eden foods is, uh, I think it's the only, the largest American pasta maker that's making it now. Um, you can find bulgur and, um, uh, couscous available and a little bit harder to find. You can find crackers and shortbreads um, uh, and, and puffed, puffed, uh, cakes and that sort of thing, uh, through Susie's, um, groceries. Um, so those are just a couple. You can go on our website, kamut.com and, and, um, you can find, there'll, be references to where you can find stuff too. And if you want to follow wow. my farm, farm thing, you can go to Bob or Bob Quinn organic farmer.com. Although Richard, you're telling me it's down today. So I got to, I guess I have to sick my somebody that knows how to do about that (laughs) and get it back up again. So anyway, but that's normally working. It's our Instagram and and, uh, blog is on there.
0: And I do recommend the, uh, I really enjoyed the, I, I got the physical book and I also listened to the audio book and the audio book was a great listen. I'm a big fan of audio books because I can be out walking in nature right. and listening to a book at the same time. And it's a really good listen. It's well, you know, it's well read by the two readers. And uh, it's a, it's a really good read. And, you know, I'm looking forward to having a baseball cap that says regenerative organic farming. Damn it.
1: <laughs> well, that's um, great. Well, I have, I have to give a little bit of, well, not a little, a lot of credit to being a good read to my co-author, Liz Carlyle. Um, And she, that's her profession. Uh, although she's a great uh, faculty member of the University of California, in Santa Barbara now, but she um she wrote it in a style that uh was easy to read and I really appreciated her help in putting that together because I'm um that's not my uh forte. I tried I worked on writing a book for five years. It was turned down by my favorite publisher and Put it together in five months, and we had about five offers. <laughs> <to publish>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: that's the difference
1: between a professional, and that's the way I normally work. I usually look for team. Uh, I'm a team building guy. I look for partners that can help in um, uh, areas that I'm deficient in, and and uh, vice versa, so that we can have a team effort, and and the and the end result then is quite um, positive and very and often successful.
0: That's really great. That's really great. I, for, for, I'm a talking person. I'm not a writing person. I can't write to save my, pick a body part, but I can talk. So that's my forte is, is speaking. So I've worked with people who write and they're like, that's amazing. You took that and turned that into something. That's truly astounding. Yeah. So it's a thing. So it's an amazing art.
1: Yeah. It's a gift. Everybody has their own gifts and they, they all go and they're all important and they all can contribute to each other. So it's, it's a great thing.
0: Really, thank you so much, Bob. That was great. Uh, there will be a part two, I can tell. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> everybody have a great. Thank you. Uh, everybody have a great rest of the weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye now.